Well, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, if you're brand new, uh, you have missed basically the whole series. So, uh, sorry, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but, but let me say that this chapter is a really important one in the life of the Corinthian church. Uh, Paul began sort of with the landing gear down last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talked about fears he had. He, he's had three big fears in chapter 11 and chapter 12. In chapter 11, he said, I'm, I'm scared, I'm nervous that as the serpent deceived Eve, you might be deceived away from pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And that's been the central issue in this book, hasn't it? It's been central in the life of the Corinthian church about whether or not they will listen to God's true apostle Paul or they will go after uh, false apostles, pseudo-apostles that uh, look really great from the world's standpoint. They've got everything the world would say is necessary for the leader. But that temptation in the life of the church could draw them away from reconciliation with God and cause them uh, to lose the thing that makes them as a people of God so distinct. And then we saw last week, if you'll just look at the end of chapter 12, there were two fears in verse 20 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21, Paul said, first of all, I'm scared that there might be disunity, division. If you look at verse 20, he says, um, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Your church might be a mess. Your relationships might be on fire. And not only that, in verse 21, he talks about perversion taking root in the church, that the church would have no resources to be able to handle uh, the need for relationships in the church to be reconciled, and the church would have no answer to handle the sexual desires, that the church would be characterized by disunity and perversion. And that was Paul's great fear. And we said last week, Paul is getting ready to come to the end of this letter. He's going to fold it up, put it in an envelope, hand it to Titus and go, God, I pray that you would do something with these words that I have written. So what you've seen really in this book is Paul's ambition to restore the church to right relationship with God's true apostle. Because for Paul, Paul to have the message of reconciliation that message is what makes a church unique. Amen? That we have a message that no other group of people on this planet have. We have the truth that allows an individual, a man or a woman or a child, to be reconciled to their heavenly father. That's what we've got. And Paul has worked all throughout this epistle not to fight for his own reputation, which would be very easy to do in this church that he has planted. But everything that Paul has done has been for the sake of this church to be reconciled to God, for this church to be restored. And that's what you'll see here in, in chapter 13. The critique has always been personal from these false apostles and from this unrepentant minority in the church. And when you start to critique an apostle, what you have to do if you want to critique an apostle is to put yourself over the apostle. You've got to say, I'm not sure you are who you say you are. I'm not sure your message is the right message. Paul, I'm not sure you have the true apostolic credentials that everybody agrees with. And when you do that, 
When a church does that, when a church decides to put itself over the word rather than under the word, the church is in a dangerous place. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, you have the last intersection between the apostle's authority and the church's responsibility. So in the first century, the issue in the Corinthian church is whether or not this church will listen to God's word through God's messenger, right? That's the first century tension point. That's the conflict that we're looking at. Will this church listen? Will this church turn? Will this church repent? And by repenting, put away from themselves all of these false messages, these false apostles, these false Christs through a false message of reconciliation affirmed by a false spirit. And will they come back again to the apostle who brought them a message that gave them life? But now for us in our day and time, because we don't have apostles, but what we do have is the apostolic witness. The question for us as a church has to do with our relationship to God's word. Will we be a church that when the word of God cuts us, when the word of God starts to do work in our heart and in our mind and our relationships and in our submission to it and the places it challenges us where we are uncomfortable, will we be a church that questions it? Will we be a church that puts ourselves over it and says, well, that verse doesn't really mean what you think it means. That, the word of God doesn't really hold sway in these areas of my life. Like, I like Jesus and he's great, but he doesn't have something to say about all of my life. God's word doesn't wholly apply to me. So in this final chapter, what you have is Paul preparing a church to receive spiritual discipline. And the question is, will this church undermine the authority of God's apostle? Will it question his words? What happens to a church that does that? Will that church produce lasting spiritual life and fruit? And what you're going to find in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 is the consequences for that decision fall on the church, not on Paul. And Paul will do his best to fight for the heart of this church in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And when we talk about spiritual discipline in the life of the church, John Calvin says there's three marks that make a church a church. One is the right preaching of God's word. Number two is the, is the right ordinances of the Lord's Supper and what we just celebrated right here in baptism. And the third is church discipline. Will a church hold men and women to the standard of God's word? Does God's word have anything to say to our church? Does God's word have anything to say to your life? And I know stories in our church, in this place, you may have been in churches that exhibited a hypocrisy, that exhibited unhealth, that exhibited pride and arrogance, and all of what Paul talked about at the end of chapter 12, and you raise your hands and you go, does this church have nothing to say from God's word about these things? And I know church, people in our church right now who have come from churches and experiences where leaders have said nothing about the sin that's in the church. And that's where Paul is. Paul's got one final chapter. Has Paul bent over backwards for the life of this church? He has, he's talked about his suffering four different times. He's pleaded with this church, be reconciled to God. But at the end, 
You're going to see Paul say, if you don't turn, I'm going to come and you're not going to like me when I get there. All right? 2 Corinthians 13. Let's pray. Father, would you find this group of people here, would you find me receptive and dependent and humble? Father, we would pray that as this church, we would put ourselves under your authority for every man and every woman that we would submit our lives to your scrutiny, that the word of God would shine into the areas of our life that where we might be skeptical or we might be uh, undermining its authority, and would you find us repentant, and would you restore those areas, even this morning as we talk through this passage, as your word goes forth, that you would challenge, you would convict, and you would bring us to repentance and restoration in our relationship with you. So, Father, where there are rocks that need to be uh, overturned in our hearts, where there are secret sins and a settled arrogance and a refusal to submit, Father, would you uh, warm our hearts and give us not hearts of stone but hearts of flesh that we would respond in repentance and faith toward what you have to say to us here this morning. Father, bless us as we look into your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You see there what Paul will say there. You got final warnings and final greetings in your Bible. Ready? So let's look at final warnings here in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. He said that already back in chapter 12. But what you'll notice that when Paul is going to talk about spiritual discipline and church discipline, what he's about to do is is put this church on notice. What Paul does is he doesn't do it flippantly. Has Paul been patient with the Corinthian church? Yeah, he has. He's written them at least up to this point, one, two, three letters. This is Paul's fourth letter that he's written to the church. He's been with them 18 months at a time up to this point. He'll be with them by the time this is all done, close to two years. So Paul has been a significant factor in the life of this church, discipling them, teaching them, encouraging them, challenging them, disciplining them, exhorting them to faithfulness in the word. And when Paul is about to return for this third visit, remember the the first visit was we started the church. And then there were some issues in the church, right? And Paul wrote a letter, which was the severe letter that he talked about earlier on, where Paul came and there was a confrontation and Paul retreated. So Paul has written that severe letter from a second visit. And now here comes Paul with his third visit. And this last chapter prepares us now for Paul to arrive. Now, Paul, when he talks about this third visit, immediately shifts. And if you've got a cross-reference in your Bible, you'll see he quotes an Old Testament passage. Now, this is the third time I'm coming to you, and this is instructive for how Paul ministers in the life of the church. Paul is patient when it comes to church discipline. Remember when Jesus talks about church discipline in Matthew 18? He says, if your brother sins, go and show your brother his fault. One, if he doesn't listen, take two or three more. Number two, if they don't listen, you take it to the church. Now we've had three, how many witnesses of what is going on in this brother or this sister's life. And now Paul, when he deals with the congregation, says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Now we're about to have a conversation that confirms who you are, church. And remember, Paul has written them a letter that they responded to. Remember that? He wrote the severe letter. They responded. They disciplined the guy. They kicked him out. They kicked him out so bad that he got sad and they had to encourage him and bring him back in. So this church has had flashes of being led by the Spirit. 
But Paul's looking for certainty. He's looking to confirm some things in the life of this church. And he quotes the remainder of this verse from either Deuteronomy 16, or you may have a cross-reference that says Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 16 and Deuteronomy 19 are how God deals with the second generation of his people who came out of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 16 and in 19 and in Jesus' words in Matthew 18, you have repeated encounters, repeated conversations. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, you read that and you hear a judicial setting, don't you? That there are charges, there are witnesses, and there is what? Starts with E. Evidence, right? So Paul is looking for certainty and clarity on where this church stands. And he says, I'm not going to do it with, with uh, one encounter. You ever meet people like that who, who meet somebody for the first time and go, can immediately declare what's going on in their life from a spiritual standpoint? And they go, how long have you known me? Five minutes and you've got a word from God for me? Well, Paul says, I'm not going to do that with the church. I'm not going to be flippant. And when Paul quotes this, from Deuteronomy 19 or 16, whatever it is, it shows you in both 16 and 19 in the book of Deuteronomy that Paul and God won't allow either false witnesses to take hold of a congregation or malicious witnesses to take hold of a congregation. He says you need to be diligent when you seek out the sin that is in the congregation so that you have clarity so that we don't go around accusing people of things that they are not really doing. So the church discipline process, both for Paul, for Jesus, even for leaders in the book of 1 Timothy, is a patient process. We aren't reckless with church discipline. Paul doesn't show up one time and say, you're out, you're in. Paul has been painfully slow in the ways that he has done this. So he quotes the Old Testament to let you know we're going to apply God's law, God's truth, God's rules to this situation. And we're going to see who you are when I arrive. Look at verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. So you had a contingent in the church back in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, whatever it was, go back and listen to it, that was dealing with church discipline in the life of the church. And he said, I warned you when I was there. I warned you on my second visit that you've got to deal with sin in the camp. See, when Paul is discipling this congregation, he's not making the congregation dependent on himself. He's saying, you've got to grow up. You've got to take responsibility for sin in your church. You've got to do the hard work of having the difficult conversations and holding, people's, uh, holding people accountable to the word of God. Because it's the word of God that establishes the church, that makes Christians, that causes Christians to grow, that cleanses the church. It's consistent in its application in the church because we need it so much. We need to be reminded. We need to be cleansed. We need our behaviors and our beliefs to be constantly washed in the water of the word. So Paul says, I warned you and I warned everybody else, which means it's not just this little contingent over here. I'm just pointing to you guys. You're not necessarily the ones we're going to discipline. It's this little group of people on the front row over here. You guys don't worry about it. I'm just going to talk about them. No, the church says we all have a responsibility to take care of sin in the church. Do you believe that? Now, in our American culture that primarily views our relationship with God as a me and Jesus thing, this is profound. 
Because Paul just said, if you attend a church, if you participate in the life of the church, if you uh, are a member of a church, you have a responsibility to care for and to love and to serve and to engage with other people over their spiritual well-being. And Paul says, I warned you when I was there, you and everybody else, and I'm going to warn them now in this letter when I'm not there. As I did when I'm present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So Paul, listen, for us as a church, God's word has the final say and authority in our lives. Amen? God has something to say about the kind of man, woman, husband, wife, brother, sister, child, father, mother, all of those things. So Paul says, here's where you need to stand, church. You need to build your life upon the word of God. Two churches in particular are interesting. Uh, The church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira. Both the church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira have problems with tolerating false teachers in their midst. These churches, when Jesus rebukes them in the book of Revelation, says you put up with what you should not put up with. You put up with the teaching of Jezebel. You put up with the teaching of Balaam. These people who use spirituality for money. These people who rely upon sexual perversion in the life of the church. And Jesus says, those folks, I'm coming to make war with the word of my mouth. So this is a serious issue in the life of the church in 2022. Because churches will rise and fall on whether or not they will stand on the word of God. And whether or not they will obey and submit to what God says. Whether or not the Corinthian church will obey and submit to what Paul says. And Paul says, when I come back, and unrepentance is clear, then you're not going to like me because I'm not going to spare them. Now, watch this. Look at verse 3. He continues this line of thinking. If I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now, in context, what's the proof? The context of Paul's proof is how he's going to handle unrepentant immorality, perversion, and disunity in the church. Now, all through this book, this church has been questioning whether or not Paul is a true apostle, whether or not Paul can uh, hold them to account. He's been accused of being timid in person, but strong in his letters. And did you hear what Paul just said? If you want proof that I am who I say I am, let me return and find you unrepentant. Now, that's a little scary. I mean, I... Honestly, you don't want to see me when I'm mad. You don't want to see me when I show up in your church and there's massive unrepentance. And this shows you, Paul is not unwilling to go toe-to-toe with unrepentance in the church, is he? Has he been patient? He has. Has he retreated out of good for the heart of the church to appeal to them, to encourage them to obedience, to ask them to discipline the offenders that are in their midst? He has, but he won't do it forever. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
You know, every time that Jesus is asked for a sign in the apostles, he tur- I'm sorry, in the, uh, every time that Jesus is asked for a sign in the gospels, he turns it down. He says a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given to it. He says this in Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is the pivot in Christ's ministry where they decide to accuse Jesus of being indwelt by Satan. Not a good idea. And Jesus in Matthew 12 says no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here. What's the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, what Jesus says is my testimony to you will be my resurrection. Now, what does that have to do with here? What it has to do with here is how the church views Jesus. Typically, the church views Jesus as kind of a toothless dog. You can quote me on that, I guess. I, I, don't put that on a t-shirt. I, I could think of a better illustration. I apologize. They view Jesus as, as flowy, breezing around, two inches off the ground, long hair, happy, but not really as judge. Not really the one to whom we will have to give an account, who is the Lord of the living and the dead. Not the one that John fell down in front of in the book of Revelation. And this is Paul's point. Don't miss this. Paul is saying he's not weak in dealing with you. He is powerful among you. What is happening in the life of the church when the church preaches the true word of God? People are freed from sins that hold them in bondage. Jesus breaks the power of sin in our life. Amen? He has the last word. He has authority where nobody else has authority to forgive sins. And when Paul says Jesus is going to deal with you in the church, in context, it means Jesus is going to deal with the sin that corrupts the church because Jesus loves, dies, serves, crucified, dead, buried, and raised for the sake of the good of the church. Now watch this, verse 4. For he was crucified in what? Say weakness. Paul, this has been Paul's point. What has Paul's ministry been characterized by? Weakness. Difficulty, hardships, four different times in the book, Paul says, a night, a night and a day, adrift in the sea, in danger from robbers, in danger from Jews, in danger from Gentiles. I'm constantly harassed in my ministry for the Lord. I bear on my body the brands of Jesus. If you pull up my back, there are four times 39 minus one on my back. And now as Paul turns In 2 Corinthians 13, he says, Christ is powerful among you. What has Christ done in the church? He's raised them to new life. He's given them salvation and reconciliation. He started this church. And as you look back at the ministry of Jesus Christ, he was crucified in weakness. You have a past tense and you have a present tense. He was crucified in weakness, but what? He lives by the power of God. Now, watch Paul's pivot. Watch Paul's analogy, his connection between Jesus' humble, man acquainted with sorrows and grief kind of ministry in in the Gospels, and Paul's. For we also are weak in him. We also face life in this world where there is pain and suffering and difficulty for holding to the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead. But in dealing with you, We will live with him by the power of God. 
And when Jesus talks about the church in the book of Matthew, he says that there is wheat and tares. That there are people who listen to God's word and receive what God has to say and receive forgiveness of sins and those who hear and who undermine it and question it and explain it away and presume they don't need to obey, presume they don't need to submit to what God says, that they grow in intellect, but they never grow in knowing who Jesus Christ is. And Paul says, when I arrive and there's this constant questioning, this constant assault on my qualifications, this refusal to bend the knee, this refusal to do what God says, I am going to arrive and I'm going to apply the authority that I have been given for the good of God's people. So in light of this church that has a mixture of responses. What is Paul's counsel? Paul says discipline is coming if you don't repent. And I go back to what I just said here in verse 4, that when Jesus walks the earth and we look at Christ who is meek, not weak, right? He's fully God, fully man, and what he does throughout the course of his ministry is constant submission to the will of God for him, all the way up to and including death on a cross as a criminal. And we look at that picture of Jesus Christ, and to those of us who know Christ in this room, that is the most precious thing in the world to you. But you may look at Christ and go, well, he's kind of a good guy. He's kind of a good martyr. He's sort of an example to follow. But I certainly don't need him. And Paul says that perspective puts you in a dangerous place. So what should we do? How should we respond when we hear the preaching of God's word in the church? And the answer for how we we are to respond shows up in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Both words that have to, do, have to do with ascertaining whether or not something is genuine. Is it the real thing? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The faith is Paul's way of talking about the apostolic witness that has planted this church, that has redeemed and reconciled people, that has caused their sins to be forgiven because of what Jesus has done and established them as a body of believers. Are you in the faith? Is your life characterized by submission to God's word? If someone were to look at you, would they say the most important thing to that woman, to that man, is what does God have to say? Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? Which is fascinating to me, that this church can be examining themselves and not acknowledge a very particular point of the Christian doctrine. Paul says, don't miss this singular reality. Don't you realize that there's something true about you that you are not taking into account? Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? That is such an incredibly powerful statement. 
Don't you realize, we don't just subscribe to a list of doctrines that we all say that we believe when we recite on a wall. Do you know that? When we believe that Christ did something for me on the cross, where I could not come to Jesus, to God on my own. I needed an advocate. I need someone to redeem me. I need someone to pay the penalty and the price for the sins that I have committed because I have only earned wrath from God. And what I needed is somebody to die for my sins in my place on the cross to be dead and experience the punishment that I deserve. And when the Christian turns to look at Christ as his or her only hope of salvation, what happens is what the Bible calls regeneration. What happens is that Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, comes into my life and gives me new life to affirm that I am his and he is mine, that all of my sins have been forgiven, that I am known and loved by the God, the maker of heaven and earth. Don't you realize that Christ is in you? Where would you go? Why would you listen to anyone else? Why would God's word be so far from your mind and heart? Don't you realize that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Unless you fail to meet the test. What did this church want from Paul? You know what they wanted? Proof. Are you who you say you are? See what Paul did? Paul just did a little bit of spiritual theological jujitsu. He goes, you don't get to examine me. You need to examine yourself. You need to test yourself. You need to ask yourself from some hard questions. See, this is why church discipline is one of the marks of a healthy, vibrant, God-honoring, gospel-centered church. Because for a Christian to be outside of the body of believers is for a Christian to say, I'm not saying that there are, there are only unsaved out there and only the saved in here. What I'm saying is for a Christian to divorce him or herself from the body of believers, that individual steps out into the world and says, I can handle the world, the flesh, and the devil, no problem. I don't need the word of God for my life. I am fine with discerning the thoughts and intentions of my heart on my own. I have a great perspective on me. I'm pretty godly if you ask me. I'm pretty obedient if you ask me. I don't really need the church. Me and Jesus are just fine. I don't need to submit anyone. I don't need to serve anyone. Jesus is here to meet my needs and accomplish my dreams. And for a Christian to make those kinds of statements, to make those kinds of decisions, is to put him or herself in a place that is incredibly precarious. And the consequences will only be theirs. They won't be the church's. That individual needs to ask some deeper questions about their spiritual life. Where do I really stand with Jesus? Am I accountable to anyone? Am I under authority anywhere? Does God's word have anything to say about my secret sin patterns? Is there anybody that I can be open and honest with about how I'm really doing and about where I'm really headed in my life? Test yourself, examine yourself, see whether or not you are in the faith. Verse six, now watch this. 
This is great. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. All along the way, Paul has been saying that you need to listen to me. You need to listen to the word. You need to submit to what God says is true. And I hope that you will find when you examine yourself, you will discover that you are in the faith, that you are in Christ, that Christ is in you, that you are a true congregation that has come to the knowledge of your sins being forgiven and you being reconciled with God. I hope you'll find too that we have not failed the test. And what Paul does by saying that is say where you are going to stand will determine whether or not I and you are on good terms. Because this church has to decide. If Christ is in them, then they are united with Christ's apostle. If Christ is not, then they are united with the false teachers who preach a different Jesus with a different gospel according to a different spirit. You gotta choose. See, if you're not going to submit to and listen to the word of God, you will submit and listen to your emotions. You will submit and listen to your reason. You will submit and listen to your logic. You will submit and listen to what the culture says. You will submit and listen to what is said on YouTube. You will submit and listen to anything. When you wander away from God, man does not truly become an atheist. He becomes a worshiper of something else. We're wired for worship. We're wired for relationship, which means you will submit your soul, your hopes, your dreams, either to the word of God, or you will submit your soul, your hopes, and your dreams to something else that you think promises you life. Welcome to Genesis chapter three. Amen? I hope you'll find out that we have not failed a test. Verse seven, but we pray. Man, isn't that, aren't you glad that Paul puts that there? But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. What's Paul doing all the way through this challenging the church to accept his authority, challenging this church to repent and submit to God's word? He's praying. He hopes. He's asking. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, that's not my hope, is that we would be validated as an apostle. That doesn't matter to me. What you think about me doesn't matter to me. That's not my hope. My ambition and my desire is that you would be reconciled, that you would be right with God. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Which is it's kind of a confusing verse, but Paul is saying, I will take my reputation and take it on the chin if you guys are right with God. I'll let the false apostles critique me, be skeptical of me and my teaching, accuse me of being timid, let my reputation fall to the floor in the eyes of the culture as long as you people are built up, as long as you people are recognized, as long as you people will do right. See how self-forgetful Paul is? This church matters so much to him that he'll gladly sacrifice his reputation for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. This is instructive, I think, especially when it comes to church discipline. Church discipline is not an issue of um, uh, personality, right? That the church doesn't go, who don't we like today? Uh, let's see, Dave's out, Karen, she's gone. Uh, we don't like them. Let's get them out of the church, do a church discipline. Paul says, I can't, my hands are tied. This is where leadership in the church is profoundly shackled. We are called to do what God says to do in the word. Right? Amen? Right? I, I got, we got one playbook. 
We don't have multiples. This is what God says. We can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, which means either I come in severity, but Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4, do you want me to come with gentleness or with a whip and a rod? How do you want me to come? Because who you are and what you decide will determine my response to what is going on. Parents, you ever have to have that conversation? If you obey, things are great. You want to disobey? You get a different dad. Not, don't take that another. You trade, you trade one and get another one. Who do you want? How do you want to see me? Paul says, I can't do anything against the truth. I can only do things for the truth, which means my response is going to be bound. My response is going to be connected to what the truth of God says. For we're glad when we are weak and you are strong. I love this about Paul's leadership. If it costs me to build you up, I'll do it. If I'm at the end of myself and I'm prayerful and I need God's support and help and validation through his spirit and his strength to build you up, I'll do it. If I'm at the end of my ability and you are strong, I'm glad in that. Your restoration is what we pray for. That word, it's it's used as a noun here, uh, but it's used over in Galatians chapter 6. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, this word, restore such a one. It's used in medical context of setting a bone that's broken. It's used of bringing order and what is proper and bringing things back in line. Which is the whole goal of spiritual discipline. It's the whole goal when a church takes seriously sin in their midst. We believe your sin is walking you closer and closer and closer to deception and a hard heart. You're walking away from the Lord. And our hope and our prayer in the process of church discipline isn't validation of our reputation. Our hope in church discipline is restoration. Bring things back in line that are disjointed and broken. That's why church discipline is so patient because we long for there to be restoration. We long for those that are put out of joint, that those are broken spiritually to be restored. So consistently, here's Paul's heart. Please come back. Please be restored, God. Please do something in their mind, in their heart that would restore and reconcile that relationship with you. For we're glad when you are weak and we are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things when I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. You've got to decide though. You've got to do the hard work of repentance. You've got to submit to the word. You've got to examine yourself. You've got to test yourself. This is a significant conversation. This is a significant situation in the life of the church. And Paul says, I write these things when I'm away so that I may come and you may be restored. Paul does that, you know, um, there's two times you ask, what is, Paul, what, is, what is Paul's discipline? What's he gonna do? 
And there's a couple times throughout the scriptures, you can look at the book of Numbers and Korah's rebellion where God validates his servant Moses. You can look at Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where they lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead. Always a sign that you are out of fellowship with the God of heaven and earth. But there's a couple times that I want to show you where Paul does this. And I want to show you what it looks like for Paul. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has already done this in the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. I'll start in verse 1. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Here's Paul's method of church discipline. And this is instructive. Paul doesn't call down fire from heaven. But I want you to see what Paul does here. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the, watch that, see that word? With the what? With the power. What did he just say about Jesus? He's not weak towards you, but he's powerful towards you. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline is a scary thing. Church, the church is like God's embassy on this planet where we submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. We have certain things we can do and we can't do. There are certain truths that the Christian church believes and has believed since the first century about Christ, his deity, his virgin birth, about being fully God, fully man, about how you can get reconciled with the maker of heaven and earth, about the reality of sin, about the indwelling of the Spirit, about the conversion of men and women, about his eventual return and consummation of all things, right? When you step out of that embassy, what happens is that you go back into the world where Satan is in charge. When you step into the embassy, we believe that Jesus Christ has rule and reign and rights to hold his church accountable to the standards that he has declared. Amen? That's what we believe. When you refuse to play by those standards, what happens is you step outside of the embassy and you decide to take on the world on your own terms. And Paul says, when I take them and I remove them from the body, they get to go toe-to-toe with Satan. You want to go toe-to-toe with Satan? He's the prince of the power of the air. He's got authority out there. He's got the ability out there to be used by God to discipline and create consequences that you're not going to like. Let me show you this again. Go over to 1 Timothy. Turn on back to your right. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's Paul telling Timothy how to do it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus 
and Alexander, whom I have, watch this, handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here's Paul's method of church discipline. We remove you from the church and we let you handle spiritual warfare on your own. You step out of the authority and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and his embassy on this planet. And you, remove, you continue to remove yourself from submission to God and to his word. You step into having to ask yourself some really hard questions about where you are spiritually. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? Is Christ in you or not? Those are questions that you have to wrestle with. And those are questions that Paul says the church has to take seriously. Now, Look at verse, uh, go back to 2 Corinthians. Now I want you to see this. This is so good. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Y'all there? You got back? Finally, brothers. How did Paul end 2 Corinthians chapter 12? I'm scared that when I show up, there's disunity, there's perversion. I'm scared that there's fighting, there's scoffing, there's quarreling, and there's desires that you cannot handle in your midst. How does Paul end 2 Corinthians chapter 13? He ends it in between those two things. Now, I went to seminary, and there are two realities that are contrasts at the end of 12 and the end of 13. Amen? You didn't read it. That's what Say amen. Okay, good. Don't just roll with me here for a second. The intervening material between the end of 12 where Paul is scared and fearful that this church will be filled with disunity and perversion and the end of chapter 13 is church discipline, is the process of us walking out our faith in submission to God's word, of repenting, restoring our relationship with God, listening to his word, and growing and being the people that we ought to be. Now watch the end of chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. You do the work, church, and I guarantee God loves to be there. Isn't that awesome? Look at the promise that's on the other side of church discipline. I'm scared that you're not going to be who I want you to be. End of 13, look at what a great church this is. Look at what an awesome place it is to be. What church do you want to be in? The end of chapter 12 or the end of chapter 13? I want to be at the church that sounds like this. Restored, comforting, agreeing, in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. What an awesome picture of what God wants to do among us. What a beautiful promise that as his people take his word seriously and submit to it in all areas of life or we decide to make disciples teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you that God begins to do a work in us that we cannot do on ourselves. Leave us to ourselves. We get the church at the end of chapter 12. But God in the middle of us, God restoring us, reframing our affections and our attention, our ambition to, to serve him and to love him and to believe in his word, God does beautiful miraculous things. It gets better. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't worry about it. All the saints greet you. That you've got, it's an ancient Near East way of greeting that is upright, okay? Don't do that in 2022 in Charleston. You get clocked in the name of Jesus. But watch this. There's unity and favor in the church, verse 13, all the saints greet you. Where else is their favor? With everybody else who will make the word of God primary in their congregation. You have local church, healthy, strong, loving, comforting. Global church, 
of all sorts of churches that choose to do that too. Isn't that awesome? Verse 14. Here's how Paul ends the, the uh, thing. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. This is Paul's only Trinitarian closing blessing that he gives. And if you have listened up to this point and you have thought, church discipline seems pretty strict. Why do these people have the right to tell me how I ought to live my life? Why are you telling me that Jesus has anything to say about these areas of life. My life is just fine because I'm young, healthy, strong, and I'm making lots of money. The end of this passage gives you what the church has held to for 2,000 years. It gives you the gospel, what's called the good news. If you've never heard what the good news is, let me lay it out to you. The good news is this. It's preceded by the bad news. God is holy, God is pure, God is completely righteous. There is no sin in him whatsoever. And God has called all of creation to submit to his will and his design because he's the maker of all things. But what happened all the way back in the beginning of creation is that men and women refused to listen to the maker of heaven and earth. They refused to the one who has created all things for them. And they fell and they fell into sin. And I want to show you here from this passage how God decides to deal with sin because the gospel message is not a message that men made up 2,000 years ago. It's not something that ancient bishops somewhere decided to write down and go, okay, gospel, I like this, what do you want in? Let's see, uh, let's decide sin, sin bad. Grace, grace good, I like that, let's have some grace too. That's not how they did it. When God looks down at a creation that is warped and broken by sin, filled with men and women who rebel against his word, who hate to follow him, who want nothing to do with who he is, that God looks at that creation and says, I will demonstrate my love to them. I will show them what I am like, which is the central tenet in this verse, the love of God. This is how I'm going to show them what I am like. I'm going to send my only son to become incarnated into creation. Fully God, fully man. And this individual is going to live a perfect life. Exactly what I desire. He will be completely obedient in thought and word and deed. He will be completely submissive to what I desire for him to do. He will draw near to sinful, broken humanity and he will bring together holy God and sinful mankind in a single person. And throughout his life of complete obedience, I will demonstrate my grace by sending someone to take the penalty for the sins of the people of this planet. They don't ask for it. They don't want it. But I'm going to demonstrate my love and grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And this Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be hated. He's going to be rejected. And he's going to go to the cross in the ultimate act of faithfulness to God and human weakness. He will submit to people who hate him, 
who will drive the nails through his hands and through his feet and through the spear in his side and he'll be buried. And for three days he'll be in the tomb. But on the third day, proving that he has done nothing wrong, I will raise him from the dead, giving testimony that their sins are forgiven. And they have right relationship with me. And I will seal them and redeem them and reconcile them and give them evidence of my peculiar love to men and women by putting the spirit of the living God in them as a down payment of all of the promises that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And one day, as I raised him from the dead, what we just celebrated, buried with Christ in death, raised to walk in new life, one day I will take them by the hand out of the dust, completely redeemed, completely restored, not a hint of sin. And that's how Paul ends 2 Corinthians 13. Father, we pause just to recognize that the gospel was not our idea. We pause to give thanks that you are loving and you are gracious and you have sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Father, may we take seriously the call to be a church that submits to your word. Would we be men and women that examine ourselves, that test ourselves, that long to be men and women that present to you hearts of wisdom, that you would remind us of your great love, that even now as we talk about these things, for those who are in the room who are wandering away from you, that you would get a hold of their hearts, that they would turn in repentance and faith, confident of your love, because you've demonstrated it by sending Jesus for our sins. We love you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.